Well, good morning. We're going to be looking at uh, our text this morning in Ephesians chapter 2. For those uh, who are visiting this morning, we're doing a study in the book of Ephesians, and uh, we are in chapter 2. And uh, we'll bring you up to speed very quickly, and then uh, we'll carry on with, beginning with verse 11. So chapter 2, verse 11. <clears throat> We have encouraged all the believers here to memorize the whole book of Ephesians and uh, hope that you are all struggling through that victoriously. I don't know if you can say it that way, but we hope you are. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to look at three verses this morning and we'll begin in verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ." So the next topic that we've come to here in uh, chapter 2, verse 11, is actually from verse 11 through 22. We're only going to look at three verses this morning. Uh, The topic is about unity. And so far in Ephesians, we've taken a backward look at our lives. And we, in chapter 1, we looked back before creation, how God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And uh, we've looked that, at the fact that God has a plan for you, that he predestined us to be sons, to be his children, and all of the blessings that come from being his children. We looked at that in chapter 1. He, uh, planned, his plan included sending his son to the cross to die for us. It included uh, redemption, the forgiveness of sins through his blood, and uh, And then we looked at the fact that he offered the gift of salvation to us by grace through faith in him alone. And so the gospel message at some point in your life was proclaimed. You heard the gospel message and you saw yourself as a sinner and you believed the gospel message and you were saved. And the moment you were saved, you were placed in Christ and all of the blessings that God intends for Christ are yours. And the Bible says it this way, that you are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Last week we looked at the fact that you are God's masterpiece. And a masterpiece is the uh, premier work, the the, the greatest work of of an artist or of a sculptor or someone like that. And they put it on display for all to see. And in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, we see that we are God's masterpiece, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. And we are going to be on display for all of eternity, showing the riches of His grace and His kindness towards us in Christ. It's an amazing fact that God has chosen to do that with us. And so, as we look at this passage this morning, uh, part of God's plan and part of the mystery that we read about in Ephesians is called the mystery of the church. And a mystery is not some mysterious thing or some novel that you try to figure out you know, what the end is from the beginning. 
But a mystery is something that was hidden in the Old Testament. It has now been revealed by God. And the mystery that he talks about in Ephesians is the mystery of the church. And part of God's plan is to take every human being who trusts in Jesus Christ and place them united in one body. Well, we have a bit of a problem because we are divided. We are not united. And that's what this passage is about uh, this morning. And so part of the story that we haven't told yet is how is God going to bring about peace between two opposing parties, two opposing groups. You know, the world is full of division. We all know uh, and we have all experienced divisions in some way or other. By the way, have they settled the BART strike yet? Yes? No? See, we have division even here. <laughs> division. Uh, I don't know whether it's settled or it's not settled, but I do know this, that you have two opposing sides. You have the workers who are not, are not happy with certain conditions in the workplace. They're not happy with their wages. They're not happy with the safety issues connected with BART. And you have management who looks at it and goes, get a life. You're making a lot of money. You're, you, uh, I, we could call all kinds of other people off the street and pay them less and they'd be quite happy with it. Get a life. We want to make a bigger profit. So stop your griping, right? And you have two warring parties. They're supposed to be working together, but they're divided. And this division is felt in the workplace. Some of you uh, may have experienced the same thing between unions and management. Some of you are part of unions. Some of you are part of management. And you look at each other uh, very differently. You look, oh, yeah, you're a union, okay. Or you're management, of course you think that way. And there's this division. Some of you feel very strong on one side or the other of that debate. There are divisions in families. Families can't get along. Families are splintered by sons and by daughters who um, can't get along with their parents. Offenses come within the family unit, and uh, even husbands and wives can't get along. The divorce rate has climbed uh, to an all-time high. More than 50% of all marriages end in divorce. And the top reason for divorce today is what? irreconcilable differences. It's just a catch-all for everything. We just don't get along. There's division. There's fighting. We can't get along with each other, with each other anymore in the home. Now, I, I tread on this next one very lightly, um, very carefully, because <clears throat> I might be thrown out. Sports teams. Okay? <laughs> Some of you are very passionate about the sports team that you, uh, that you go to, uh, the, the games that you go to. You're very, very passionate about your team. And <laughs> I can't imagine if there's anybody in the seats around you that is cheering for the other side. Okay? There's division, even among sports uh, fans. Amazing. Well, let's take it to the political arena next, and it's the Reds against the Blues, Right? It's the Democrats against the Republicans and vice versa. And each side is convinced of the rightness of their position. They, each side is determined that they have the moral high ground, whatever that is. And there is real animosity and contention, bitterness and rancor uh, of opposing sides. 
the spite between those two groups is almost palpable at times. And some of you may be so strong in your feelings about your uh, political allegiance that you might even think and say things like, I'm a Christian and I'm a Republican. As if the two of them are equal. Okay? They're not. There's division in this country. You could be just as passionate say, I'm a Christian and I'm a Democrat. There's division in this country. And some of you are more vocal about your political uh, allegiance than you are about your allegiance to the Lord. And there may be some who quite, feel quite superior in their political allegiance to those who are from an opposing party. And uh, you may post a different colored sign in your front yard than your neighbor, and you go, huh, I'll tear that down tonight. Okay? And you know, the feelings that you have, and I want you to think about this for a second, the feelings that you have when you say, I'm a Republican, or I'm a Democrat, and I'm not saying that you're Republicans and you're Democrats, you could be mixed here, okay? I'm from the Green Party, or I'm from whatever, you know? That feeling that you have is in opposition to the people who don't have your position. And there's a tendency in our hearts to look down our nose at, the, at those who are opposing, have opposing views and say, well, we're better than they are because we're this. And you, get, you begin to get a sense of division between people. If we take politics to a world scale, you will actually see Democrats and Republicans and Green Party people and, and Libertarians uh, joining sides against views of other countries. And the Reds and the Blues will fight side by side in the same war against those of an opposing side. Our own leaders state that we are fighting battles to create peace. So we have war to create peace. That's what they're saying. George Bush Sr. believed, and I'll quote this, the forward march of democracy will usher in world peace. In other words, if we just make every country a democracy, then we'll have world peace. Do you believe that? Yet the opposing countries are just as determined that peace comes by way of revolution. Hmm. Fighting even on that scale. Some believe capitalism is the answer to world peace. Yet others are equally determined that communism or Marxism or some other ism will bring about world peace. Some of you probably have taken sides on this issue and debated this issue and gone on Facebook and, shown how, and, and other websites and shown how right you are in your position. Believing that your political or social agenda, agenda is the right one, that all others are to be despised or even crushed. Right? You're beginning to feel the sense of division among people. But the greatest division of all is the religious divide. Radical religious groups shout the loudest at each other that their way is the right way. Radical extremists express their hate and their disdain for anyone who does not belong to their group. Bitter hatred motivates people to maim and, and, and kill countless thousands in the name of their God. Some of you may feel very strongly about these issues, that you actually feel a hatred 
towards those who are of other religious groups. And now you begin to see the extent of the division that God was faced with with the human race. Well, we haven't even talked about racial tensions, social issues that divide, financial inequities. The world is filled with conflicts, and, they, and these conflicts escalate to all-out war. Patrick Henry once said, Gentlemen, cry, peace, peace. But there is no peace. And I don't know the statistics exactly. I did try to look it up online, but there was conflict even among the statistics. So um, about how many years has the world actually known peace? In other words, no actual wars going on anywhere in the world. Very limited in all of our history. The fact is the world is in a constant state of turmoil and we are divided. And perhaps the greatest religious divide was the conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles. And that's the the, um, topic of our conversation this morning. Uh, Politicians, religious leaders, military leaders, great thinkers of all time have tried unsuccessfully to bring peace to the Middle East, and it still hasn't happened. The animosity runs very, very deep, and the Gentile nations that surround Israel today would just as would be quite happy to push Israel into the Mediterranean Sea and uh, annihilate her. They've stated that. They're quite, they would be quite happy to do that. And apart from divine intervention, that is exactly what would happen. It's not going to happen, but that's because God prevents it. The animosity is not one-sided. The animosity, the hatred flows both ways. And if it's going to take divine intervention, the question is, how can God bring two very distinct groups together in peace, in one? And that's the the question that we have to answer uh, this morning in this passage. And so uh, today, you're going to hear from a Gentile. Next Sunday, you're going to hear from a Jew. Both of us are united in one, in Christ. And you're going to hear not a divided message, you're going to hear a united message. And you're going to hear how God reconciles Jews and Gentiles together in one body. We are united in Christ. We are one in Him. So the unity of the body, it's a key ingredient in the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 17. In verse 21, he says this. He's praying to the Father, and he says, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. I think it's a wonderful prayer. It's part of a longer prayer, of course. But, you know, as the world looks on, and the world cannot create peace in the Middle East, They've tried everything, and they can't create peace. God has created peace between Jews and Gentiles. And God is basically saying, look, that they all might be one, that they might be united, so that the world looking on might recognize that this is of divine origin. This is from God. Only God can create peace where there was war between two uh, factions. Paul describes it this way in 1 Corinthians 12. 
For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. Paul is saying, look, you're all individual members, but you're all part of one body. And what creates unity is that we are all together uh, in one. It's the Spirit of God that is working in all of us. Now, at Calvary Bible Chapel, we have uh, a diversity of races um, that have all been brought together as one body uh, by one Spirit. We have those who were raised in a caste system that now break bread with common laborers. Can you imagine? We have male and female who are filled with the Spirit of God. We have young and old that are united in the one body, the church. And more to the point today, at Calvary Bible Chapel, we have Jews and Gentiles who are worshiping the same Lord Jesus Christ. Praise Him for that. It wasn't always that way. So we're going to pause here for just a moment, and we're going to look at God's dealings with all of mankind first. And it's important to realize that God, through history, has tested and will test mankind in every conceivable way. So that in the end, he will show the greatness of his wisdom and he will show the the sinfulness of man in every possible light. So uh, we have a a, a resident chemist here, and I'm going to call Andy forward uh, for a moment. We're going to do a little test. So yesterday, I went up to the house, and uh, we have a hot tub outside, and it has water in it, of course, and uh, the, I took a, okay, thanks, if you'd like, I took a sample from the hot tub, that's the water here, clearly says, in case you come up afterwards, do not drink, okay, (laughs) and so... I have to go through a little, bit of ke- a little bit of chemistry to make sure that the water is clean enough for people to use when they rent our house. And so I want Andy to um, give his expert opinion here as to the cleanliness of my water. And I hope none of my guests are actually listening. Is, on the is this on the internet? Not yet. <laughs> so you hold that. There we go. And then, uh, so that the, the uh, here, here. so we have a, a stick, and on this stick are little uh, markers, and this mark, once it is dipped in the water, we hold it out for 15 seconds, it changes the colors of these little dots. It tells us something about the condition of the water, so I'll just test it that way, okay? Oops. I hope I haven't bleached the carpet. So there's uh, five, six, seven, ten. I'll wait for five more seconds, and there we have it. So now, Andy, you can tell me about the conditions of the uh, water. Very low hardness, so very few dissolved materials in there. Free chlorine, very little chlorine. pH, it's probably close to neutral. Total alkalinity, uh, yeah, about middle of the road. And cyanic acid is very low, which is good. 
So I think it's clean enough to drink? No. There's cyanuric acid in there. Okay. And so what would you say? Is that water clean enough to bathe in? All right. So you give me a high marks? Yeah. Yeah, it's actually pretty clean. All right. I'm impressed. Now, the water had just been changed, and it had just been chemicaled up. So it should be, it should be that way. But after uh, my guests use it tonight or tomorrow or whatever, if I do that same test, I will guarantee you the results will be totally different. And it means I'll have to chemical it up again, different things I'll have to put in it to bring it back to proper conditions. Now, the reason I use the illustration is this. God in his wisdom has taken all of mankind and he has taken, as it were, a container of mankind in a test tube and he has tested mankind under certain conditions. And so let me give you one example. He, God took a nation, the Jewish nation, the Jewish people, and he made them a test tube nation. And he tested them under certain conditions. And Andy, if I were to say to you, the condition of this test tube of water, uh, it, would it be fair to say that what you find in this, you would also find in the hot tub from which I, I took this? If it's a proper sampling, right. Okay. Uh, he speaks as a chemist. I would have just said yes. <laughs> So the, the point is this, that if God takes a sample nation, a sample people group, and he tests them under certain conditions, God can actually conclude that if all human beings were tested under those same conditions, they would all pass or fail the test. Whatever they did in the sample group, they would do in the whole world. All of us would be the same way. And so as God tests Israel under the law and they fail to keep the law, God can honestly, justly, righteously say, all men have sinned. If Israel has sinned, all mankind has sinned. It's a fair test. Okay? It's a sample group. And that's what God has done with Israel. So, <clears throat> God himself never changes. God's character is the same from beginning to the end. I am the Lord, I do not change. He does not change in his character at all. But the way he administers affairs in, in, um, of men, it does change. And we call these changes dispensations or administrations. And the best way I can illustrate an administration or dispensation is this. Uh, when Chris and I got married, there were two of us, her and me. And the way we conducted our life in our home was very simple very easy. We just did things together and there weren't too many complications. And then when the monsters came, I mean the children came along, <laughs> things changed and we had to change the way we did things. There was a difference of situation and we had to treat these little toddlers in a certain way. And then as the children have grown, we've, they've had to treat us a certain way. <laughs> No, there's been changes of administrations within the family. And the same is true with um, mankind. It is our view that there are seven dispensations. And uh, even those that don't hold to a dispensational viewpoint will have to admit that there are at least two. 
And so we have a little chart here, and I want to show you um, it works. There are at least two separate and distinct dispensations. Jesus said in John chapter 1, verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so I have listed up here law, that's one dispensation, and grace, or we'll call it the church age. But here Jesus talks about it as grace and truth. If you look at your Bibles, your Bibles are neatly divided into two sections. You have the Old Testament and you have the New Testament. And those, that division between the Old Testament and the New Testament actually speaks of the difference between law and grace. A change of dispensations has occurred. God's way of dealing with mankind changed. The Old Testament brought to us the law and the blessings that, fo- that were given by following it and the curses that came from disobeying it. But what shines in the New Testament is God's grace. How he deals with people today is on the basis of undeserved kindness. So you say, well, I'm not convinced yet. Well, let me ask you a question. When was the last time you took an animal and you sacrificed it as an offering to God? Things have changed, haven't they? So we don't do that anymore. Why don't we do that anymore? Because there's a difference in discipline administration. We are not required to offer animal sacrifices. There were certain foods that were um, considered unclean that are actually in the New Testament called clean. Jews were told to put away foreign wives and children, whereas in the New Testament, an un- a believer is said not to put away his unbelieving wife or her unbelieving husband. Um, in the Old Testament, Uh, everyone except for the high priest was prohibited from coming into the presence of God. And even the high priest could only do it once a year and only then with the proper sacrifices. Today, it's changed. All who are believers have free access into the very presence of God. In fact, we're told to come boldly into the presence of God. So there's been a change of at least two dispensations. Well, if there are two dispensations, there has to be more. There has to be at least three. Because as we uh, uh, see here, there's got to be at least one before the law because the law didn't come until Exodus 19, 20, and so on. And then after the church age, we know from the scripture that, in fact, we just read about this uh, a few weeks ago, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, which is talking about the millennium, that's coming after the church age. So we know the church age is from Pentecost to the rapture. Once the rapture takes place, a new dispensation will occur. Before the law, there has to be at least one other um, dispensation. And so we see that there are at least four, but in fact there are seven. And so if you want to just put up all seven. We have the first one, which was innocence. God tested the human race when there were just two people, Adam and Eve. And he had tested them under conditions where there was only one rule to follow. And that was it. They were innocent. They had not sinned. And God said, you can eat freely of all the trees of the garden. Enjoy them all, except for one. The day you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. So during that period of time, they were innocent. And God tested them under that condition. And we know from the scripture 
that when Adam ate that fruit, that he represented not just Adam and Eve, but he represented you and me. We were in Adam. And what God is saying there is that that test tube of two people represents what you would have done in the garden too. What Adam did, you did. Okay? It's a fair test. The next is conscience. After they took of the fruit, they felt guilty. They hid. They tried to hide their nakedness and everything else. They now had a conscience. They knew the difference between right and wrong. And God tested mankind under conscience for a period of time. Until we got to the flood, where God destroyed the world with a flood. And there were eight people that were spared, Noah and his family. And after the, uh, they came off the ark, God tested them under human government. He basically said, uh, if man sheds blood by man, his blood will be shed, which really started uh, human government. Then we have the promise, the call of Abraham, the law, grace, and the millennium. Now, you know, note to self, this would be a good study for the future. Okay? If you haven't already done a study like that, I'd recommend it to you. So we come back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11. And in light of dispensations, we'll see more clearly what Paul is saying here. Talking of, or during the dispensation of law, God was dealing with only two types of people. Those who were Jews and those who were not. And Paul refers to the Jews in verse 11 as the circumcision. And this refers to the surgical procedure of circumcision that was performed on every Jewish boy at eight days old. And the Jews were required to do this as a sign of God's covenant with them. So take your Bibles and, t- and turn to Genesis 17 with me, and we'll see where this comes to play. Genesis chapter 17, and we'll begin reading in verse 10. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign, this is the key part, it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or, brought, or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with money shall be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Okay? That was God's law. It was a covenant. It was an agreement. That's what a covenant means. It was an agreement between God and, in this case, Abraham, but Abraham's descendants as well. And it was an agreement that God made with him. The Ephesians, and most of us in this room, were Gentiles by birth. And as such, we were born having no relationship with God at all. We had no promises. We had nothing. And that's what Paul is trying to emphasize here, is look, it's great that we're talking about God choosing you before the foundation of the world and all of the blessings that he has given to us as believers. But Paul is saying, take a step back for just a minute. I want you to look at where you came from. Where did you come from, Gentiles? You had nothing. You were promised nothing. 
You had no covenant with God. You had nothing from God. Uh, in Ephesians 2.11 it says, Therefore remember that you, Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called... So you were, you were called this derogatory term. We'll put it in quotation marks. You uncircumcised. You uncircumcision. You were called that by the Jews. Called here the circumcision made by flesh of hands. The Jews were God's chosen people. God dipped his bottle in the human race and he came up with the Jews. Okay? He chose them as his people. That was his sample group. And if you were a Gentile, you were not included. Okay? God chose the Jewish people as his people. He gave them all kinds of benefits that he did not give Gentiles. And the Jews were God's chosen people and they knew it. They knew it. And they looked down their noses at those who were not Jews, those who were Gentiles, and they despised the, the Gentiles. And they called them, you uncircumcised. And the Gentiles were despised by the Jews. The, gen, the term uncircumcised was really a racist remark. It was an ethnic slur um, against the Gentiles. It's a derogatory word. Do you remember David when... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, Goliath had come against the nation of Israel, and David said, who's going to fight him? I'll fight him. Okay? He was so incensed that this giant Gentile was mocking the people of God. And he got his stones, and he got his sling, and he went out, and he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? I used to tell that story to my kids. And they love that part. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And that was David. It was, a, it was a racial slur. He hated the Gentiles in that sense. And for a Gentile and a giant of a man to be standing against the armies of God, who does he think he is, this Gentile? Okay? That was the feeling of the Jews towards the Gentiles. It's derogatory. It's hatred. And they were proud of their position. They were proud of their calling. Why did the Jews feel this way? Well, it was because God had chosen them above all the nations of the earth. They were God's special people. They were God's anointed people. They were the ones who were given all of the blessings of God and everybody else was excluded. Why did God do that? Because He wanted the Jews to be His witnesses on the earth. He wanted them to declare to the world the greatness of God. They wanted, he wanted them to show forth the wonders of God, the character of God, that He would bless people who by faith in Him have trusted in Him. And instead of doing that, it all went to their head. We are the Jews. And you oh, are the Gentiles. That's the way it was. And it still is in many circles today. They became proud of their position. They became proud of their ancestors. They became proud of their calling and proud of their laws and proud of their covenants. They became so proud that God chose them above all the nations. They became the circumcised. And everybody else was the uncircumcised. Well, God did call them. 
It's true. And he instructed them to be different and to be separate from all the peoples of the world, all the other nations. But it wasn't to make them proud. It was so that they might be witnesses to the nations of the glories of God. God gave them very strict clothing laws and dietary laws and marriage laws and worship laws and festivals and customs and land laws and laws of every sort designed to bless them so that the nations of the world would see that they're different and they would ask the question, why is God blessing you? Why, why is God giving you so much? It's so that the nations, the Gentile nations, might long to have a relationship with God. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. Their lifestyle should have caused the nations around them to seek God, but instead they used their laws as a means of despising the other nations, of selfishness, of pride. And rather than attract people to God, they themselves forsook God and became like the other nations. And the same pride, I want to just say this, it's not really part of our passage, but I want to say this, the same pride can creep into the church. The same kind of pride can creep into our hearts. We are to be different. Our walk is to be different. Our talk is to be different. Our attitudes, our lifestyle, our thinking should be completely different from uh, the world. In Ephesians chapter 4, we are told that we should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. In other words, when we become Christians, our lives should change. We should be different than we were before. The Bible tells us that we lived in sin. We lived in greed. We lived in lewdness. We lived in lusts. We lived in ignorant behavior. That should be our past. But we are to walk in newness of life now, in righteousness, in holiness. We should be different. We are to be different. Why? So that the world can see us as believers and they can see the glory of God through lives that have been changed and so that they will be attracted to our God, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that they might want Him, that they might come to us and say, why are you so different? Why are you so different than everybody else around us? Why do you have joy when everybody else doesn't? Why do you have peace when there is no peace? Why do you have love for other people? That's how different we should be. It's so that we might be attractive to the world, that they might seek God. But we must not walk around like the Jews did, thinking that we're better than everybody else. After all, I'm a Christian. What are you? You know? Instead of being a witness to the world, they became an isolated people, despising everyone that was not a Jew. The Jews thought that God, really, they thought this, that God created the Gentiles as fuel for the fires of hell. Wow. They believed that all other nations were hated by God. You know the story, it's in the scripture, that when a Jew went from the south of Israel to the north of Israel, at the south end, they would cross the Jordan River to the east, go up the eastern side, cross over the Jordan back again. You know why? Because they didn't want to go through Samaria. You know why they didn't want to go through Samaria? Because in Samaria, you had half-breeds, people who were Jews and Gentiles together. They were married. They had children who were half-breeds. And they, would not, they despised the Samaritans. 
And that's why it shocked the disciples when Jesus said, I must needs go through Samaria. Are you kidding me? Those despised Samaritans? You're going to go through their territory? Shocked them. This animosity toward the Gentiles is also seen in the life of Jonah the prophet. You remember Jonah? God placed him in a particular place and said, Jonah, I'm calling you to do me a favor. Not a favor, I want you to go. This is your ministry. I want you to go to the Gentile nation of Nineveh, that city. And you preach my love to them. Preach repentance because I want to save them. And Jonah listens to this. He's a Jew. They're Gentiles. Are you kidding me? Gentiles? You want me to preach to Gentiles? He got on board the first boat that, went, that was going the other way. And God didn't stop him there. Okay? Had a storm at sea. Threw him overboard. Swallowed by a great fish. Prophet was sick. Caused the fish to be sick. <laughs> and the fish vomited him back up on the shore. God placed him right in the same spot again and said, Jonah, I haven't changed my command. Go and preach to that city. And he did. Now, I'll tell you something. Any preacher that would preach to a city and have the entire city repent and turn to God, wow, who wouldn't want to be a preacher like that? He sees this enormous blessing of the Gentiles who forsake their sin and trust in God. And he goes off to the top of a mountain and he pouts. And he says, see, God, I told you, I knew you were going to save them. Those Gentiles. That was the thought. That was the feeling of the Jews towards the Gentiles. Imagine God showing kindness to the Gentiles. If a Jew visited a Gentile area, his shoes, his sandals would pick up dirt from a Gentile territory. And before entering into Israel, he'd take the sandals off his feet and knock the, knock the dirt, the Gentile dirt, off his sandals so he didn't pollute Israel with Gentile dirt. If a Jewish boy was married to a Gentile girl, the parents would hold a funeral for the boy, ostracized from the family. But you know, it's sad to say that history shows that Gentiles have responded in kind. And we don't have to look very far back in history to see the hatred of the Jews and the slaughter of the Jews in Nazi concentration camps. The hatred has gone both ways. Very, very strong. And even in the early church, it was hard for the Jews to accept the fact that Gentiles were actually included in salvation. How could that be? Peter struggled with this on more than one occasion. Remember the, the sheet that God brought down in, in a vision for Peter, showing all things were clean, meaning that Gentiles, the unclean, could actually be saved. It, it just boggled Peter's mind. Paul later had to rebuke him to his face because he was denying the fact that Christ had abolished the middle wall of partition that, that was between the Jews and Gentiles and that all were one in Christ. And Peter was basically excluding the Gentiles again. And Paul had to come to Peter to his face and rebuke him for it. That we are one, members of the same body. There are no longer distinctions. Now the truth of the matter here is that it positionally is true. Jews and Gentiles are equal. Jews and Gentiles are equal before God. They are equal in the church. They are equal in the body of Christ. They are equal in every way. But how do you take two groups 
that were so opposed, that were warring factions, if you will, and bring them together as one. God has his work cut out for him, doesn't he? So let's start with verse 11. Paul wants the Gentiles to remember that they were former Gentiles, and as a result, they were despised. That's the point of verse 11. And as Gentiles, they and most of us had not three strikes against us. I know baseball well enough to go three strikes and you're out. Not four strikes against us, but five. There are five strikes against them. And so Paul is saying here, Gentiles, before looking down your theological nose at others, you take a long, hard look at where you've come from. You take a long, hard look at where God has taken you from, the position you had before you were in Christ. Let that be a reminder to you as you now reach out to the world, as you now reach out to others that you know, may have political differences, may have uh, differences of, of view of sports teams, hard as that may be. Those who have differences of opinion in other ways. Don't look at them with the same hatred that there was before between Jews and Gentiles, but look at them with love and reach them for Christ's sake. Five strikes against us. The first one is that Gentiles were without Christ. Well, in the sense of salvation, both Jews and Gentiles individually did not have Christ. They were not in Christ. Every single person, whether Jew or Gentile, must come to personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is that the Jews, as a people, had the promise of the Christ, that is the Messiah. And the Gentiles did not. The Messiah was not promised to the Gentiles. He was promised to the Jews. The Messiah was to be a Jew. And he would focus his attention to the lost sheep of Israel, Jesus said. No such promise was given to the Gentiles. That's strike one. Strike two. Gentiles were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. I showed you a few weeks ago my green card. I am an alien. I, am a, I know I don't have the little things that go up, but I am a resident alien in the United States of America. That means, quite frankly, that I don't belong here. I am a foreigner. I do not have the rights and the privileges that you have as American citizens. What you can claim as a citizen, I cannot. I am a stranger on the outside looking in. Such is also true of the Gentiles in their relationship with the Jews. That's what he is saying here. They were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Strike three, Gentiles are strangers from the covenants of promise. What does that mean? Well, it's really interesting. As you do a study through the Old Testament, you will find that God made covenants with Israel. Those are promises. We talk about the most common covenant that we have today probably is a marriage covenant or a purchase of a house. And it is a covenant. You agree to certain terms and they agree to certain terms, and then you buy your house. Okay? It's, a, it's an agreement, like a legal binding contract. And God made several legal binding contracts with Israel, but he didn't make them with the Gentiles, only with Israel. 
God made covenants or special promises to Israel, and the Gentiles were excluded. There is the covenant made with Abraham that included the promise of the Messiah, a whole bunch of descendants, a material and spiritual uh, prosperity, and a great name. Uh, God made a promise to Isaac and to Jacob. There's the covenant of law, which was given through Moses. The Palestinian covenant, which describes the territory, the land, that God had given to Israel. Now, they have not come into the full benefit of that yet, but it's still a promise from God that will be fulfilled. Israel will have all of the land that God promised. Um, There's the covenant with David that not only says that the Messiah would come through his line, but that same Messiah would sit on his throne perpetually, that, that, he would, that his reign or his throne would never end. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a promise to Jews, not to Gentiles. The covenant with Solomon and then the new covenant as well. Another note to self, another great study in the future, okay, the covenants. But we don't have time for all of that today. All of these covenants were given to Israel, and the Gentiles were not included in these promises. We were not promised a Messiah. We were not promised uh, physical or material prosperity. We were not promised a great name. We weren't given the law. We weren't given the promises. We have no claim of land territory. We have no promise of a king on a throne. We have, uh, God is making all of these legitimate claims or promises but not to Gentiles. He was making them to Jews. And so we have no guarantees, no promises, no security as far as the covenants are concerned. And when the last will and testament is read, and you can read, read it yourself all the way through the Old Testament, Gentiles are not named in there. Now there are promises for Gentiles, but as far as the covenants are concerned, we're not there. That's not us. That's the, Gentile. That's the Jews. We had nothing. Can you imagine that? Sitting there and a will is being read. You go, okay, what do I get? What do I get? You're not in there. You're not named. Strike four. Gentiles were without hope. The Jews have a future and a hope because God promised things to them forever. The Gentiles had no such hope that our Government. We don't have a hope that the government of the United States of America will last beyond the next hundred years. We have no clue whether it will or not. God hasn't promised that to us. But Israel remains and will continue because God has promised. Uh, there are no nation or people group um, is promised survival. And as individuals, we had no hope of future in heaven. We had no claim to anything, and we had no reason to expect a deliverer would rescue us. Why? Because we were Gentiles. We weren't Jews. Strike five is that Gentiles were without God in the world. Now, it doesn't mean that all Gentiles are atheists. Many Gentiles have gods. They worship stones. They worship wood pieces carved into an image. They worship gods of their own imagination. The Ephesians themselves worshipped the goddess Diana. But they did not know the one true God, and that's what he's saying here. They were without God in the world. God had revealed himself to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. We were apart from God. And if you look all around you at the unsaved Gentiles with whom you work, with whom you go to school, 
they live as if there is no God. And they die without any hope in God. What a pathetic existence. Now, does that mean that God, therefore, will not hold the Gentiles responsible? (laughs) No, it doesn't mean that. Because God has revealed himself in Romans chapter 1 by giving every one of us his writing on our heart. God has revealed himself in our heart. It says that. We didn't listen to him. We didn't seek him. Instead, we chose our own way and chose to sin. And we loved our sin more than God. And so God says at the end of that section, we're without excuse. Gentiles are without excuse. Well, in baseball, it takes three strikes and you're out. You've just seen that we have five strikes against us as Gentiles. Then as Paul is known to do, he gives us this huge word that changes everything. And that word is but. But. That changes the whole picture. But in contrast to the way you were, he says, now in Christ... Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We were separated from the Jews and we were separated from God. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins and brings us near to God. And it actually resolves the separation between the Jews and the Gentiles. Here's how he did it. What does it take to become a part of the church? What does it take to become a member of his body? Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross for our salvation. Faith in the fact that his blood was shed and paid for our sins in full. And that gospel message goes out to every creature, Jews or Gentiles. And so if a Jew who had all of these promises, says, you know what? I'm a sinner. I need salvation. And my salvation does not come from my own works, but it comes from the work Jesus Christ did on the cross for me. I believe in him. That Jew is now part of the body of Christ. His Judaism, his Jewishness, if you will, no longer applies. He's now a Christian. He's now in Christ. But the marvelous thing about this story is that we who were far off, we who had no promises, we had nothing, we had five strikes against us, Gentiles, the same gospel message goes out to us. Whosoever believes in the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so the Gentile comes and he says, you know what, I'm a sinner too. I'm just like that Jew who's a sinner. I'm a sinner too. And I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and paid for my sins in full. And if I believe on Him, I'm saved. Yes, you, a a Gentile, you're saved. And you lose your Gentileness, if there is such a thing, and you become one with the Jew in Christ. And so there's no longer that distinction between Jew and Gentile. I don't even like the term Jewish Christian or Gentile Christian. Because it still leaves tags there that no longer apply. You're in Christ. It doesn't matter where you came from. It matters who you're in. And you're in Christ. You're in the body of uh, Christ, the church. We cannot be, this, this division cannot be fixed by politics. 
It can't be fixed by the brain trust in the world today. It's the only solution is found in the blood of Jesus Christ, who died on, Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us. So when a Gentile comes to the Lord, amazing as this is, he's no longer alienated from God. He's no longer without Christ. He's in Christ. He's no longer outside of the promises of God. He has many more promises and better promises than the Jews had. He's no longer without God in the world. He's actually as near to God as Jesus Christ is. He is in Christ. An heir of God, a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And not only have we been brought near to God, so have the Jews who have believed in Jesus Christ. And the enmity that once existed is completely dissolved at the foot of the cross. And that's how God reconciles two opposing parties. It's a marvelous, marvelous story. You are not a Jewish Christian. You are a Christian. You are not a Gentile Christian. You are a Christian. And the distinctions that separated us have been torn down. We are now joined together as one in the church. Let me just read uh, finally, and this, we'll end with this, with prayer. Galatians 3, 26 and through 29. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ or been placed into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Let's give him thanks. Father, as we think of the divisions that have uh, been around for centuries, millennium, we think of what a mess we created between each other. And yet, Lord, we think of how at the cross, Lord Jesus Christ died, shed his blood for Jews and Gentiles. The same blood that is applied to the Jew is applied to the Gentile. The same blood cleanses from all sin. The same Lord Jesus is received and accepted. And the same Jew and Gentile are together, one in Christ, no longer with national distinctions, no longer with division, but one in Christ. Lord, how we marvel at your grace, how we marvel at the wonders of your work. And we just give you praise and thanksgiving today. We pray, Lord, that as believers we would not become ones who consider ourselves better than others, but that we might walk in lowliness of mind, realizing where we came from and realizing what you've done for us, Lord, and help us to have that same grace as we reach out to others and bring them the gospel. For the gospel is for all mankind. And you said, Lord, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Lord, we pray that we might fulfill that in our generation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.